Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Nicodemus was no insignificant man. This is somebody who is a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Jews. And those aren't just riffraff Jewish rabbis who get to sit on that council, but the cream of the crop, the top of the heap, the best of all of the teachers in Israel. Jesus himself calls Nicodemus not a teacher, but the teacher. This is somebody of great importance, of significance. Probably someone who could have run theological circles around most preachers today in North America, who probably had forgotten more theology than most of us are able to remember. His name means victory of the people, Nike Demas. But like the rich young man in the other Gospels who wanted to earn salvation, Nicodemus just lacked one small thing. A more complete knowledge of God's word. For everything that Nicodemus knew, he was still missing the one thing that was essential. And so Jesus has to turn to this man of great significance, a man who sits on the Sanhedrin, a man he calls the teacher of Israel and says, how is it that these things you do not know? So what is it that he missed? What is it that Nike Demas, the victory of the people guy, did not know? Well, the answer has to be in Jesus' very blunt statement to him, you must be born again. And everything that that statement implies So I want to turn us back to our Old Testament lesson, to Abram and Sarah being asked to leave the land which they had known for all those many years, a land where their family was and their neighbors and their community, and pick up and move to someplace else. A lot of our Lutheran congregations in the Midwest cannot even fathom what that would all be about. So many of the places that I preach to when I'm on Network Reconnect have families that have been in that church for centuries. But I look around at all of us here this morning, and each and every one of us has either traveled to another land or, frankly, come and moved from there or to there. Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family. That's what God says to Abram and to Sarai. And it is not a small affair to leave things behind. It is no small affair to pack up your household, put it on a plane in a bunch of containers or on a ship, or maybe just in suitcases and come to someplace new. Years ago, when I left Philadelphia, I had to tell Liberty Lutheran Services, the board on which I served, that I was moving to Houston, Texas. And I don't remember telling them any more than that, but when the newsletter came out for this board on which I served and announced that I would be resigning, it said, Pastor Charles St. Ange has accepted a call to Houston, Texas, where he will be moving in a month to be closer to his family. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. It was the furthest that any of us had ever been from our families. But the people on the board simply could not fathom why you would pack up all of your stuff and take a call further away from the people you know and not closer. The people on the board knew that it was no small affair to live a far piece from your family. And the reason for this sacrifice was no small affair either. It wasn't like God just said, you know, Abram, Sarai, you're probably a little bit bored of living in Iraq. Let's go check out someplace new and exciting. It is no small affair that God chooses this couple because God tells them that it is through their family that all the families on earth will be blessed. There is a global significance to this move that our moves don't often share. It seems global to us and to our families and neighbors, but for Abram and Sarai, it really was. This was a move that would change history. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, gets this significance of this move, that it is no small affair. Paul writes clearly God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was not based on Abram's obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. The whole of the earth would be blessed through Abram, not so much because he does a thing, but because God asks him to do it and he believes. He trusts so much that he's willing to pack everything up onto the back of goodness knows how many camels and trek across the desert of the Fertile Crescent and finally make his way to the Promised Land. Throughout the prophets... God is constantly saying that his plan for the world is also no small affair. God thinks big, even when we're thinking small. Jonah is a great example. Perfectly happy to stay in his little community in Israel and be the pastor for the people of God. It was a good life. So God came and said, I want you to pick up everything and go to Nineveh. But God, Nineveh is our enemy. They hate us. They hate everybody. They find people they don't like. They nail them up to the walls of the city and they skin some of them alive. You want me to go there? And God says, yes, because the thing that I am doing in the world is no small affair. Isaiah is the same. Isaiah is constantly trying to stretch the people of Israel to think bigger because God is thinking big. It is too small a thing, at one point the Lord speaks through Isaiah, for you, Israel, to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. It is too small an affair for my Messiah to only save this small group of people here in this tiny piece of real estate. I'm thinking big, even when you're thinking small. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, 
And the Christ, the Messiah, says to him, you must be born again. That is a radical thing. Nicodemus, Mr. Victory of the people, thinks victory is going to be by the people. And that if only the people have the right set of laws and the right set of instructions, everything is going to be just fine. And so his view of the Messiah had become very small. We know you're a teacher sent by God. What's the new take on the rules so that we can follow them and maybe get a little bit closer to being the thing that God wants us to be? Jesus' response to that is, this is no small affair that God has sent his one and only son. He is here in order to redeem you by his blood on the cross and save the entire world. Your preaching, Nicodemus, is too small. Do this, don't do that. Rabbi so-and-so says this means this, but Rabbi such-and-such says the other thing. You have got to preach bigger. Global. Salvation. God doing his thing and not just delivering a new type of law. You must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. Rebirth. It hardly gets more radical than that. When somebody wants to tell you that their life has been changed, they don't just add a couple lines on their resume. They don't just say, I decided to order a new cup of coffee today instead of the same cup of coffee I get every time. Or I've decided to do things a little bit differently. They tell you they've been reborn. They're totally transformed. They're brand new people. And that's why Jesus, first of all, chooses that picture. That's how much we must be changed in order to be fit to enter not the earthly promised land that Abram and Sarai were called to, but the eternal promised land into which we will be for all eternity with God. But the second reason is this. Birth is something in which we are not intimately involved with if it's our own birth. Yes, we were born, but how many of you remember that? Somebody else had to remind us that we were born on our birthday. Like Linda, the first Sunday of the month, when she sings out everybody's birthday. If somebody didn't tell you that you were born on a certain day, would you have ever known? It takes other people to remind you. And you didn't choose to be born at that day either. I know my mom would like to say, oh, you were just really stubborn. It took you 24 hours before you decided that you were going to make an appearance. Two weeks late, I might add. I really didn't want to come. But I don't remember that. And I certainly don't remember taking a willful action to delay my entrance into this creation. And you didn't either. Birth is something that is gifted to us. It happens. We don't choose it. It chooses us. And then we can never go back. Because once you're born, you're born. You can take that birth away, but you can't give yourself another birth, as Nicodemus rightly understood. It has to be gifted to you. And so Jesus is God's one and only Son, sent to be lifted up on a cross in order that we receive salvation. That whoever might look upon him on that cross, as the people of Israel looked upon that serpent lifted up in the wilderness 
in faith and trust that in this crazy thing God is saving you and I has exactly what is being offered there, forgiveness of sins and life. I could think of more, no more beautiful illustration for this paradox that we feel sometimes like we've chosen to follow Jesus, and yet really it is Jesus who has called us by the gospel and enlightened us with his gifts by the Spirit than the movie, The Gospel of John, which is still one of my all-time favorite Jesus movies. And in that movie, at the very beginning, we see the disciples being drawn to Jesus, just as it happens in the first chapter of John's Gospel. Andrew goes out and calls Peter, and Philip goes out and calls Nathaniel, and everybody says, we've, we've found the Messiah, and everybody makes the decision, so it seems to come and meet this Jesus. And then they travel around with him, hither and yon, all over Israel. And we see all of that in the movie, and then we get to the last chapters of the Gospel, and the last supper that Jesus has with his friends. And that beautiful line from the gospel where Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And being a movie, as Jesus says those words, we see in beautiful sepia flashback all the times the disciples came to Jesus and thought they were choosing to come to him. But in fact, all along, it was their gracious master preparing them to be reborn, to make them new people. Nicodemus was used to leading the people. And when you're in a leadership position, you often forget what it means to have other people lead. I think Nicodemus was so far up the Sanhedrin that he had really become convinced that he was the one who bore all the burden of doing God's work in the world. And Jesus says, you must be born again, and let me once again be God, and you become the receiver of the gift. It is no small affair that Jesus has come for you and me to save us. Now, I served for five years in Texas, and like Quebec, it is a culture in and of itself. They kind of have their own language, y'all kind of talk their own way. you got to kind of tune yourself to the way they're talking to you when you're in church. And they have their own history. Texas loves to remind everybody that they were an independent country before they joined the United States, the only state in the Union that was its own republic. And looming large in the history of Texas is the Alamo. Remember the Alamo, which is ironic because the Alamo was... A terrible defeat from a certain point of view. A handful of Texans and Mexicans held out at a fort, kind of in the middle of southwestern Texas, surrounded by many, many, many more Mexican troops. Until finally, of course, the Mexicans under Santa Ana broke through, slaughtered them all. And the Mexican general was quoted as saying when he took over that fort that it was but a small affair. Until, of course, a few weeks and months later, he was utterly defeated in Houston, what would become Houston. The Alamo provided the necessary delay 
for the rest of the Texan troops to get together and mount the final assault and ultimately defeat the Mexican army and push them back south of the Texas border. What Santa Ana considered a small affair turned out to be monumental in the history of Texas. And in the same way Jesus is coming into the world, like the call of Abram and Sarah, might seem like a small affair. Two people picking up and moving to a new place. A man hoisted up onto a Roman executioner's tree and killed. But God is always taking these small affairs and doing things of global significance. If only the disciples could see now two billion Christians around the world who have all been called by Jesus to follow him, who have all through the waters of baptism been born again so that we are no longer the same people that we once were. We now have the right to be called the holy ones of God, to be called the saints of Jesus. Jesus' being lifted up was no small affair, and neither are your lives a small affair in the eyes of God. And neither are those small acts that we do every day with our neighbor. It might seem like a smile for the cashier or a kind word to a brother or sister or a helping hand for somebody in need is just a small thing and insignificant. But it is in those small things that God changes people's lives. Just as in the small death of one man in Israel, God so loved the world. And saved you and saved me. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.